Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Orange and Brown Talk podcast here on a Thursday. Dan Lobby with Mary Kay Cabot and Ashley Bastock. Uh, we're going to get to some coaching hires here today. We're going to talk a little bit about Kevin Stefanski and play calling a little later. But uh, obviously, this coaching search continues for the Browns. The big name, Mary Kay, and where I want to start is Kellen Moore. Obviously, this is a, a guy who kind of came to fame as a, as a Dallas Cowboy. And when he got into coaching after his NFL career, uh, was a play caller for the Cowboys. His star rose pretty quickly. Uh, he was getting head coaching interviews, in fact, if I remember right. And then things went south with Mike McCarthy. He ended up in L.A. this past season. But Kellen Moore is certainly a name people know and certainly a prominent name. Um, and this sort of, I don't know, it feels like today the search kind of expanded beyond maybe what we thought it would be. And, uh, you know, of course, Brian Johnson is is one name, but Kellen Moore certainly the big one. Yeah, well, he is the most experienced play caller out of all the candidates that they have interviewed so far. And I think that's significant because once you move up into this level of candidate and this level of coordinator, uh, then you really are kind of looking at Kevin giving over the reins to to play calling or at least sharing it or thinking about it. I mean, you're probably not going to get a Kellen Moore unless you give him play calling. I mean, he's not going to come here uh, to not be on that track. And he has other interviews. He's actually interviewing with the Eagles today. So, and they need a play caller. So if you're not going to give him that, then you can pretty much kiss that one goodbye. And the competition for the best offensive coordinators right now is fierce. It's fierce. I mean, so many positions are open. You know, the Bengals is open right now. Uh, there are a lot of them. And there are still head coaching uh, positions that need to be filled. And those guys are going to take some of the best guys with them. So I do think that, you know, there's a, probably a pretty good chance that Kevin's going to have to at least offer a share of play calling right away. Maybe the whole thing. And it's it, that changes the game because, um, you know, he's taken a lot of heat for his play calling. The Browns really think that, uh, you know, that that is his strength or one of his strengths. I've never had as much of a problem with it as some other people have. We know he's very aggressive going for it on fourth down and some of those kinds of things. Um, but, uh, you know, this this could uh, signal a paradigm shift in the play calling and how Deshaun Watson is worked with. Yeah, actually, when you hear the name Kellen Moore, like, like I said, certainly a hot candidate for a long time now. And a guy that is, if if you're going to get him, He's not just going to take any job, right? This isn't some up and comer. He's He's been doing this for a little while. He's going to want play calling. I, I do feel like this signaled a little bit of a shift here for, for what the Browns are looking at. Yeah, I mean, like Mary Kay said, what's different about him is the fact that he has way more experience play calling than these other guys. Obviously, he's with the Cowboys before Brandon Staley hired him with the Chargers. I mean, the Chargers liked him enough to interview him for their head coaching vacancy before they hired Jim Harbaugh, which like probably didn't stand much of a chance there. As you guys know, I've been hypothesizing since like October that if Brandon Staley got fired, Jim Harbaugh would wind up in LA with the Chargers. But I definitely think, you know, it is an interesting change just because I know we had this discussion recently about for Kevin himself, it doesn't seem like calling plays is necessarily his end all be all. But we do know and have spent a lot of time over the last few years talking about that 
that was a big reason why they hired him in the first place. And especially last year when this narrative really started, I think, to gain some steam about is he going to hand over play calling? What's that going to look like when Deshaun comes back? And I think we were all kind of on the same page of, well, you hired this guy because you liked his play calling. And now you've got him the quarterback. So you have to see what this looks like with him calling plays for Deshaun Watson and not this weird mixture of Jacoby Brissett for two thirds of the year and then Deshaun for the last third. Um, so I'm really curious, you know, to see how this materializes ultimately. But I do think this is definitely a shift. Like this is a guy who is a true play caller. And if you do, do bring in somebody like him, I think if you're Kevin Stefanski, you got no choice at that point, but to hand at least a majority of that responsibility over to him. So, I mean, let's just keep going down this road because I think this is the discussion Kellen Moore sparks. I mean, Mary Kay, when I think about Kevin Stefanski giving up play calling, I haven't had a, a like a huge issue with, I think any play caller, you can make the best play caller in football and we could sit and nitpick little things about those guys. And well, why, you know, why'd they do and even Andy Reed, right? Like people complain that Andy Reed sometimes gets too cute. So you can nitpick any play caller. I think Kevin has been fine. I think he's gotten better. We have to remember he's only done this since 2019. Um, I, I think there's times and maybe he could lean on people a little more with Nick Chubb and that offensive line. But again, that's one of those nitpicks, right? So I think he's done fine. I think he's gotten better. I think he's a really good play caller. And I just wonder, like, we've sort of seen this, you know, Nick Sirianni is the first name that pops into my mind, right? He goes to Philadelphia. He ends up giving up play calling. And now a year after they go to the Super Bowl, he's like fighting to keep his job, which is going to happen, but he had to like fight to stay there. And there's this feeling of what exactly do you do here with him? And I don't think that's going to happen with Kevin, but you do open the door for that. If you give up something like play calling. So I'm, I'm actually really intrigued by, by this and where this might all go. Yeah. I mean, I think it's a pretty big deal. I think the play caller is a huge deal because that is what, in many cases, makes a Super Bowl champion. The play caller and the quarterback together. You know, I mean, you think of the great combos and and that's really uh, kind of what it's been. Um, or at least some kind of a, a brilliant head coach and an amazing quarterback together, that synergy. And so, yeah, we're going to have to see if, um, you know, if they give it up, if Kevin gives it up, and then, you know, how does Deshaun sort of jive with get along with and vibe with the new play caller. And, you know, it remains to be seen, but Kellen Moore has been a quarterback. He called plays for Dak Prescott for four years in Dallas. And then he went out to the Chargers this year and called plays for Justin Herbert. So he's got way more play calling experience, not way more, but he has more play calling experience even than Kevin Stefanski from a year's standpoint. So he is the most experienced, he would be the most experienced one on the staff. Um, and then just in terms of the other guys, like you would not have to give over play calling right away, probably, or maybe not to a Gerard Johnson, whom I know they really liked and whom Deshaun would really like and who's close to his quarterbacks coach, Quincy Avery. You would not necessarily have to give it to Andy Dickerson, the Seahawks offensive line coach. That could be a transition situation where you kind of collab on it together if you ever wanted to have it down the road. Um, and then you have uh, Ken Dorsey, who you know has called plays for for the Bills, but 
you know, the thing with a couple of these guys, Brian Johnson, the Eagles, former offensive coordinator, who is interviewing with them today, you know, some of these guys have gotten fired for not doing a great job in their previous job. And so you have to really try to separate what was their role in that situation? And was it in spite of them? Was it because of them? Would it have been different if X, Y, and Z were different in the place that they were? Was Brian, were Brian Johnson's hands tied with Jalen Hurts in Philadelphia? So you don't really know, but those guys that haven't done it for four years or five years or whatever, you don't necessarily have to go handing it over right away. So there's a lot of places, a lot of ways to put this puzzle together. And, and the other thing to remember is, you know, just because you might want a Kellen Moore doesn't mean that you're going to be able to get a Kellen Moore. Yeah. And so the other part of this too, that, that I think about is there, there's definitely a lot of reasons teams hire offensive head coaches, right? First of all, that's just, that's the glamor position, right? People know offensive corners. They love points. They love scoring, but you know, look at like D'Amico Ryans, right? I think we all agree D'Amico Ryans has did a great job this year. I think he's going to be a great coach. But when you hire a defensive coach, you do put yourself in a position where that guy who's working with your your young quarterback is eventually going to move on and you've got to replace him, right? And that's something, again, to go back to Nick Sirianni, that's something he struggled with this year. Now, that's something a guy like John Harbaugh hasn't struggled with, is finding offensive coordinators to to work with his quarterback, right? Former special teams coach. And he's been able to find guys to work with his quarterbacks over and over again. So this sort of breaks up that dynamic of the reason you hire an offensive minded coach in the first place is you want to pair him with your quarterback and you just don't have to worry about it. Like the play caller and the quarterback are going to be together for as long as this train keeps rolling because that's your head coach. So Ashley, I think that's an interesting dynamic here too, where you put yourself in a position where you're going to, you're going to hand over play calling to somebody else. And that creates a little instability if it's a good problem to have, if there's success that creates a little instability moving forward. Yeah. I mean, that's, what's so, I think just tough about this position and this responsibility in general. But I also think just like thinking about that, it's why a guy like Johnson, like Mary Kay, I know, I think you've gone down this road a little bit, like why it's so appealing because there's kind of already that built in connection with your quarterback. And if you would want him to call plays, eventually, obviously we've talked about how, somebody like him who would be a new play caller, you would have that safety net at least. So I don't know. It's like, there's so many different routes they could go with these guys so far. And like from the experience spectrum with that calling plays in particular, you kind of have brought in a little bit of everything so far in terms of who you've interviewed. And, you know, it's not obviously, like we've said, it's not all up to the Browns. Like these guys obviously all have other opportunities. There's still about a half dozen teams or so that need coordinators. These guys are going on at other interviews. So yeah, I mean, this is a year where that instability in general, just fe- it feels like there's a lot more of it. And even until the head coaching, like Mary Kay said at the beginning of this, when the head coaching thing just shakes out across the league, that's going to you know cause more ripple effects with these coordinator jobs. And the, um, the John, there's now, it gets confusing, but there are two Johnsons who are interviewing uh, for the Browns or have interviewed. Uh, Brian Johnson is there today. And uh, Gerard is the one that, you know, he is in sort of the Deshaun, Quincy Avery, C.J. Stroud family. And he has never worked with Deshaun, but he's worked with C.J. Stroud, who Deshaun is close to him, and then Quincy Avery and Gerard 
Johnson are close. They've worked together, Elite 11 and all of that. When it comes to Brian Johnson, the thing where he does have the connection is that he has coached Jalen Hurts. I mean, he's coached Jalen Hurts. And, you know, Jalen is a, a really good dual threat quarterback. Now, not every dual threat quarterback is the same. They are all very different. They have their strengths. They have their weaknesses. They have their nuances. But there's still enough crossover that you're going to be bringing to the table that mindset of, oh, this is just not a pocket passer. This is not Joe Flacco, okay? <laughs> this is completely different than that. And here's how we do that. And I think that's important. I think that's very important uh, to have somebody in this role that is well-versed in that kind of coaching, that's done it, that has the feel for it, maybe has played it like that themselves. In some cases, they have guys that they're interviewing that have played that kind of quarterback. Um, and as I've mentioned before, one of the things that I like the most about Gerard Johnson is the fact that, and people probably, maybe people think I'm overplaying this, but Deshaun is coming off of a major shoulder surgery. And Gerard Johnson understands that. He had to live through that. It changed his life. It changed his career. And so when Deshaun goes out there in, uh, you know, in the offseason program or in OTAs, and he has, you know, this mental block about letting it rip or whatever, Gerard's going to be able to get him through that. And I, th I think that's important. Now, that doesn't mean that he can call plays. We don't know if he can call plays. He's not done that. Uh, so there are just so many different ways that you can go about this. I mean, that wouldn't be a deal breaker for me with him because we know that Kevin can call plays, whereas like in in Philadelphia, like, you know, they they want their guy to be the, the next play caller. You know, I think that's what they're looking for. But yeah, so many different ways you can go about this. And as as you were talking about that, Mary Kay, I also started to think like, so like Deshaun Watson and Jalen Hurts are kind of different types of runners. Um, Jalen is a little more, He's, he's a little more of a power runner, right? And, he you know, we know the legendary stories about how much he can squat and and all of that and the, the brotherly shove. Kind of why that works is because of Jalen Hurts. Um, you know, Deshaun, I actually was just looking this up while you were talking. They, they're at least listed about the same weight, which I actually didn't expect, both about 225 or around 220. But Deshaun's just a different runner. He's built different than, than Jalen. He's more of an athletic runner. Um, but also... I think this new offensive coordinator is going to have to think a lot about how do we protect Deshaun Watson? Because, mm -hmm. you know, we know Kevin Stefanski was looking to that Philly run game a little bit, that quarterback run game and sort of how they use Jalen. And I don't know. I almost don't know if they want to do that this year because we've, because of what you were just talking about, the shoulder surgery, like Ashley, they have to protect, they have to figure out a way to protect Deshaun without taking away that ability to, you know, create and, and make plays happen you know, that was a big part of what he was doing in Baltimore. Um, but also, you know, he's just, he's a different sort of player than Jalen Hurts. And I don't know if you want to expose him to those hits again this year. I know. And I mean, that's something we, it feels like, have always talked about with Deshaun and his running style and that athleticism and the negative side of that is some of these hits he's going to take are not going to be so fun. And, you know, ultimately a hard hit is what got him hurt in the first place with this shoulder. So, I am curious, you know, we've talked a lot about this shoulder injury being so unprecedented, obviously, specifically with quarterbacks, specifically in their throwing shoulder. 
Um, there's just a lot of unknown, even like in terms of his timeline and ways to, you know, compare his recovery to somebody else. But that is, I think, an underrated part of this. Like the throwing is obvious, right? Like how is that injury going to affect him? Is he going to be underthrowing things? Like all legitimate questions, but his running style and how much you want to expose him to those hits, how much, like Mary Kay was saying, is he going to have a mental block to not want to get hit in that way anymore? Or is it going to take him a while to warm up to that again? I do think that's maybe like an underrated part of his game because obviously that ability is so, so important with what he's able to do, especially in the RPO game and everything like that. And those split second decisions he's able to make with his processing. Um, so I'm really curious, just again, it's just, it's hard because it's such an unknown because of the nature of the injury. The other aspect of that is if you are an offensive coordinator and you have an opportunity to take one of these really good jobs and you're looking at a Jalen Hurts or you're looking at uh, a Joe Burrow and, you know, one of these quarterbacks, it might factor into your decision that Deshaun is coming off of a shoulder surgery. And the truth of the matter is, even though every single person has told us without fail that he's going to come back and he's going to be the quarterback that they believe he always was nobody can say that for sure I cannot find precedence for it in the NFL I just I can't so you, you know they can say it all they want and they need to hope that that's going to be true and Browns fans need to hope that that's going to be true but I would have to think that as an offensive coordinator and you're putting you're throwing every single thing into the hopper that would have to be one of them and I, I was sort of looking at this too. Um, when you think about Kellen Moore and, and you think about Gerard Johnson as well. Um, so when you think about Dak Prescott and CJ Stroud, those are both quarterbacks that will move, but they look downfield, right? Like Dak Prescott doesn't run a lot. And CJ Stroud didn't really run a lot this year either. And even at Ohio State, he didn't run a lot um, until they they played Georgia. So it almost kind of fits maybe what the Browns want this to look like with Deshaun Watson. And I think Deshaun's kind of like, I don't think Deshaun necessarily wants to run. He doesn't want to be Lamar Jackson he or even Josh Allen. He wants to be, he he's looking to throw the football when he scrambles. Now he's, he'll take off and run and get yards, but he's, he's not a guy that's going to run. He's not going out there to rush for a hundred yards every game. So, you know, both of these coordinators have worked with quarterbacks. Justin Herbert's kind of the same way who, they can move and they can run, but they're really, I mean, they're, they're throwing the football. They're not, their rushing attempts aren't all that high. I mean, CJ Stroud rushed the ball 39 times this year. Justin Herbert's usually in the fifties. So I, I do think like there's going to be an element of like, we want Deshaun to be a thrower of the football. We don't, we don't want him to be Lamar or someone like that. That's just not never when Deshaun's been at his best. It's keeping plays alive and then making plays down the field. Well, then you also have Ken Dorsey, who has mm -hmm. worked with Josh Allen for a number of years. And, you know, that he brings a whole different dynamic to the table, but he is also quite the runner in his own right. A bruising, almost linebacker style runner, just galloping down the field and bowling people over. Uh, so, you know, you, you've got Ken that brings that whole aspect to it as well. So, you know, you've got guys that, you know, that bring some very unique experience to the table. That's almost what you don't want for Deshaun, though. 
Like, I, it right. would scare me if Deshaun was playing like Josh Allen. That that would worry me a little bit. But it would, it would scare anybody <laughs> for anybody to play. Like it scares Josh. me when Josh Allen plays like Josh Allen. <laughs> right? No doubt. Okay, let's take a break and then let's talk about some other coaching stuff uh, as well on the other side. Hey, if you like food and drink and who doesn't, we're breaking new ground with our lively new podcast about dining and drinking in Greater Cleveland. Hosts Josh Duke and Alex Darris crackle with their fun talk about the latest foodie happenings joined by the most in-the-know experts in town, Mark Bona, Paris Wolf, and Peter Chikarian. It's called Dine Drink CLE, and you can find it anywhere you download podcasts. Give it a listen and get your mouth watering. Again, that's Dine Drink CLE. All right, welcome back to the Orange and Brown Talk podcast. So from the last time we recorded, actually not long after we we stopped recording on our pod that went up yesterday, Deuce Staley is in as the running backs coach. So Mary Kay, that's kind of the first the, the first real hire here in this cycle, Deuce Staley. Um, kind of a coveted, coveted guy. He had some other some other places on board, but um, you know, an interesting hire here for the Browns to replace Stump Mitchell. The, actually, the second hire, because they already hired Tommy Reese. Tommy the- Reese. Yes, Tommy <laughs> Reese snuck it by me. All right, second hire. <laughs> uh, so they have him in as the tight ends coach. And again, he is a former offensive coordinator quarterbacks coach at Alabama and a former quarterback at Notre Dame and whatnot. So he can bring a different sort of college quarterback vibe to the table, and he might end up being more than just a tight ends coach. So we'll have to see how that plays out. But then you you bring in Deuce and, uh, you know, Deuce uh, worked for a long time with Jim Schwartz with the Eagles. So they know each other really well. And um, he has won a Super Bowl as a player. He's won a Super Bowl as a coach. So he understands what it takes to get there. Uh, he brings a younger, fresher vibe to the position. We don't know yet who the what the running back room is exactly going to look like. There are a lot of unknowns in the running back room. You know, will Kareem Hunt be back? I don't know. Um, will Jerome Ford need to be the number one back for a while again? Will Nick, you know, start the season on some kind of an injury list? Or is he going to be, you know, kind of ready to go or not ready to go? There are a lot of unknowns. So Deuce is going to have a lot on his plate, but he understands the game. Very experienced running back. Good hire for them. I bet a lot of these running backs know Deuce Staley, too, um, because he wasn't in the league that long ago. So, you know, I mean, they knew about Stump Mitchell. I'm sure they heard stories about Stump Mitchell when they got here. But this is a guy that they I mean, some of these guys probably watched him or at least knew about him or, uh, you know, that when they hear the name Deuce Staley, they know the name. So I, I think that probably helps, too, Ashley. Yeah, I mean, I do think there is this ability. I think every position coach, it's obviously different with how they connect to players, right? And like what their strengths are. But I do think that is like an underrated element of having a guy who has been there, done that. And I think it, like oftentimes we talk about when you have a team and you have veterans who can say something and that can be a teaching point. Like it means more sometimes coming from a peer than it does a coach certain, like a certain point or instruction point, whatever you want to call it. But I do think when you have those position coaches, especially like he's only 48, he's still relatively young. Like you said, Dan, a lot of these guys probably grew up watching him at some point. Um, It kind of carries I think almost a similar weight it's like okay this guy just isn't bsing me or telling me this to you know without having that firsthand knowledge like he's done it and has that point and you know I do think this has kind of been a narrative too it's like he had 
multiple offers essentially different jobs he could have taken like i do think it means something that he decided to come here and take this job i do think that's good for the browns that they were able to kind of have that draw for him okay do you guys want to feel old no but go ahead okay (laughs) deuce staley in 2002 rushed for 1029 yards five touchdowns that was his last thousand yard season now he was in the league all the way through 2006 he finished his career in pittsburgh uh jerome ford was born in 1999 Mm. yeah so i know what i was doing in 1999 (laughs) i don't know what you two were doing in 1999 but i know what i was doing in 1999 (laughs) yeah so there we go that's your your feel old moment of the day here on uh, the Orange and Brown Talk podcast. Let's talk about defensive line coach too, by the way, real quick. Mary Kay, we've kind of touched on this a little bit, but not much. But it seems like Ben Bloom is on the outs as defensive line coach, and that is not an insignificant move if, in fact, they are going to hire somebody to replace him. Yeah, it's kind of flown under the radar a little bit. Uh, But when you look at some of the things that happened with the defensive line this year, which is Jim Schwartz's marquee position on his defense, I don't necessarily know if they felt that they squeezed every single drop of production out of all of those players that they thought that they could, right? I think we all had a little bit of a higher expectation for Miles. Okay, we're going to talk in terms of sacks. Because that's how you grade defense events. I'm sorry, but that is just the world and the conversation in which they live. They know it. Quarterbacks know it. And we know it. So for the most part, we can talk about pressures all we want. But, you know, defensive ends are really judged a lot on their sacks. And I don't think that they got enough sacks out of their defensive line this year. Jim Schwartz usually has a defensive line that either leads the NFL in sacks or is second or somewhere around there. And, um, you know, they had, the, they had miles with 14, two fewer, two fewer than in each of his previous two seasons. I don't think any of us saw that coming. Right. I mean, I think we all thought with Jim Schwartz in town that maybe he was going to set the sack record. And at one point he was on pace to do that. When he led the NFL with 13 after the Pittsburgh game on November, was it the 12th or the 19th, one of those dates, Um, when he led the NFL at that point, he was uh, on pace to possibly set the NFL record, uh, which is currently held by TJ Watt and Michael Strahan at 22 and a half. So, you know, that was in play. And then, you know, we all know what happened. Miles, for whatever reason, kind of fell off the the sack map for the next five weeks didn't have any and had one in his last game against the jets. So there was that. And then again, I mean, he's going to be NFL defensive player of the year. We all know how good he is. He's absolutely amazing. Pass block win rate right up there, you know, pressures right at the top PFF number one, you know, first team all pro we know all of that, but I still think everyone thought maybe there'd be a little bit more production there. And then um, Zadarius, as we've talked about, only had his two and a half sacks until the final five games of the season. And then he tacked another three onto that. Um, But, you know, that was kind of trickling along there for much of the season. And, you know, even Oboe to a degree. Now, Oboe suffered a torn pec towards the end of the season. 
and, you know, just wasn't able to be himself down the stretch, but, um, you know, he ended up third with four and a half. I somehow, you know, I think that the expectation was that you would have gotten, you know, maybe 18 to 20 out of miles, maybe eight, nine out of Z, you know, six, seven out of oboe. And I still think that's where they want to go. I really do. I think, I mean, do you remember Jim Schwartz chewed out his defensive line for going two straight games without a sack? He chewed them out. And so I, I have to think that they're looking for more there. And, and we know it because they interviewed uh, Ryan Crow, the outside linebackers coach of the Titans. And it seems to me that it would be difficult after that, um, you know, just to say, oh, Ben, go back and do your job now. Uh, you know, it just it feels like he's going to be doing something else. So that position seems to be still open at this point. Maybe that's one of those where all these dominoes have to fall. You know, I mean, maybe Mike Vrabel wants to take Ryan Crow with him wherever he goes. Um, it's hard to say, but that's Miles Garrett's position coach. And here, once again, he's getting a brand new position coach. And he's had a lot, you know, in his seven years. He's had a lot of position coaches, a lot of defensive coordinators, and now he's getting another probably defensive line coach. And I thought the Ben Bloom, the Ben Bloom hire as D line coach was interesting. Like I, it, it was one of those things where I'm like, oh, okay, sure, Ben Bloom, defensive line coach. I, it was, it was just yeah. strange. And well, like, it's, sorry, Ash, I was just gonna say, like, yeah. the whole reason they brought in Jim Schwartz was to maximize Miles. So like now you now you've got a chance to hire a defensive line coach who could also serve that purpose. I did it's it was strange. Yeah, I mean, especially because Ben Bloom had been the run game coordinator and like the run defense the year prior was not good. So like that that always was weird to me. Like I said, I mean, I understand that oh, you have certain people you want to, you know, keep them and see how things shake out, but I've said this before. Like I was surprised too from the, you know, this idea that that is Jim Schwartz's bread and butter, like we've been talking about. And he didn't bring in one of his guys. Like there are a lot of guys at this point who are Schwartz mentees around the league, whether they work with him in Detroit or at other stops that really know the Jim Schwartz way and teach the same philosophies. And there are, you know, even guys who work under those guys now because it's been so long. So I definitely think those people are out there. And to that extent, like I, you know, I understood it. At the time, the sense for, oh, you got to keep certain people in house. You want to keep certain guys around and you're kind of slotting them into where you think they fit best. But I do think you can maybe get more production out there if you get one of those already established Schwartz guys into that room. Okay, so Mary Kay suggested we do this at the end. So we're going to do it. And I know exactly why Mary Kay wants to do this, because I know the answer to this question. (laughs) Um, She wants us to talk about what we're all watching right now here as the offseason grinds along. So Mary Kay, tell us. What are you watching? Well, the reason why I thought it would be fun to bring this up is because I think people like hearing this kind of stuff. First of all, we had so much fun with, you know, with our succession stuff and, and that was really cool. And now we actually have time to watch things again. And we didn't really have that time during the season. At least I know I didn't. I felt like I was always getting home at like eight or nine o'clock and I just didn't have as much time uh, to just hunker down and watch something. So the first thing I watched was the current season of Fargo. And I'm not going to say too much about that, but I loved it. So I'm just going to leave that alone. Um, Loved it. 
we'll get into that more in a little bit probably. But then I started watching True Detective. I've never watched True Detective before. And so I started watching the first two episodes. I think those are the only two that are out so far uh, of the current season with Jodie Foster, who is phenomenal. I mean, Jodie Foster is so good. It's blowing my mind. She's just amazing. But then, you know, then I kind of got a taste of the whole true detective experience. And so I wanted to see a whole season. So my husband and I went back. He had already seen season one, which he was like, oh, yeah, that was probably, you know, three or four years ago. I It might have been 2014. I mean, it might have been 2014. It's, it's it been came a, it's out when I was while. in college. It's been like 10 years. Yeah. It came out when it's I was so, it's so good. College. Yeah. It's so, I mean, Ashley was over here like clapping off mic. Like, yeah, these, they're both awesome. So we went back and we started um, season one of True Detective. My goodness. I mean, Matthew McConaughey and Woody Harrelson. Are you kidding me? It's so good. I'm loving every second of it. We're only, I think, two episodes in and it's already kind of mind blowing. So really enjoying it and looking forward to more. Yeah, big Big fan of that first season of True Detective. Loved season five of Fargo. I've only seen two Fargo seasons, season five and season one. Uh, season one is incredible. And I, and you know, I loved the movie. Um, but season, season one of Fargo is, it might be, I haven't seen all of them, but from what I understand, season one might be the best season. Um, but yeah, made it like a couple episodes into season two and just kind of left it off. But I, I do want to watch the rest of season two at some point. But yeah, good, good choices, Mary Kay. Thank you. I am going to go back and watch season one of Fargo and maybe other Fargos. But um, you told us, you told me the other night, Dan, that I, I couldn't go wrong no. with, with season one of Fargo or season one of True Detective. So because I was sort of already down the True Detective mode, I went with that and I'm loving it so far. Yeah. I love it. Well, okay, okay. Look, I'm going to admit to something here. I'm going to own something. Boy. Okay, oh I'm a little bit of an HGTV addict. Oh gosh! <laughs> what? Are so you sometimes, watching? sometimes at night, like if everybody's everybody else in my house is asleep, I'll watch a little HGTV. And now we have that um, I forget that other HGTV that Magnolia Network. And there's oh. this show on the Magnolia Network called <laughs> Building Off the Grid, and it is the funniest show un the most unintentionally funny show i have ever seen just laughing at these people <laughs> trying to build these like weird structures living off the grid or whatever it's the craziest oh, thing i'm like addicted i have a show for you I'm, i have a show for you then. i'm addicted to laughing at these people it's amazing so you need to watch if you have showtime or paramount plus i don't know if you're a nathan fielder fan I have not like the biggest Nathan Fielder fan. I, I find it really hard to watch awkward things. And if you don't know Nathan Fielder, that's like his whole thing. He's just like super awkward in everything he does. But his show, The Curse with Emma Stone is literally just oh, a I've, giant I've parody of it. And their whole thing is they're trying to make green homes in like her hometown in New Mexico or something. But of course, they're like not really green. They get in all these awkward situations. It had the craziest ending of a show that I've ever seen. Like, I'm still not even sure what happened. There's been so many think pieces written about it because like no one knows what happened. 
But if you like laughing at these people building these weird structures, you'll probably oh enjoy this show because that's basically what it is. It's a parody of what the show you're watching. It's it's people with like too much money and too much time and they like are disasters. I, and it's yeah. not meant to be like you're not meant to like sit there yeah. and laugh at them. But I do. But I, I will say one other show that I'm kind of getting caught up on um, is it's on. I think it's all on Netflix now, uh, but. Speaking of, of sketch comedy shows, I think you should leave with Tim Robinson. I and if you don't that. know what that is, if you've seen the hot dog guy meme where the, <laughs> with the guy with the hot dog and he says, we're st- we're all looking for the guy who did this. That's from that show. Um, so that's a uh, that's one that I'm catching up on as, as well. So finally, okay. it took me long enough. I'm writing it down. I'm putting it on my list. So- Mine is the most recent season of Fargo because Dan, you talked about it. Scott Petrak talked to us about it. Tom <laughs> Withers talked to us about it. Everyone in the Browns media room was talking about Fargo. And I, like Mary Kay, have not seen the other seasons. But, you know, I think I even asked you, Dan, and I'm like, well, it's in the anthology series, right? Like they're not connected. So I can just start this right. season and really wanted to because I love John Hamm. And what I will say is I'm in, I literally, I have to finish the last episode. I started the last episode last night, was too tired. So I've seen the first nine of the season, this most recent season, haven't seen any other Fargos. We'll consider going back because it is very good. And John Hamm for me in this season, all I will say is he is like the darker version of his Kimmy Schmidt character. If anyone watched (laughs) The Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt, it's like the parallels are crazy, but this is basically strictly dramatic. Um, and I can't believe Joe Keery in this in this uh, season. He's amazing. He was amazing. Yeah. I was he's, really impressed. He's so good. I mean, it it is so good. I I was hooked the minute I turned it on. I couldn't wait uh, to keep watching. It's it's so intense. Like you said, John Hamm is so good. Joe Keery is so good. I don't know who plays the mother in law. She's phenomenal. Oh, I it's mean, Jennifer Jason Lee. Oh, it is totally different. Yeah, she looks totally different, but it's her. She's great wow. too. Yeah. Oh my gosh. They are all so good. The characters are so rich. The acting is so good. I don't even know who plays the lead. I don't know. Juno Temple the... from Ted Lasso. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, she's she, in Ted Lasso. She I haven't even seen Ted Lasso yet. Um, I know. That's a fine. But um, but she's so good. I mean, she's just so good and it's the writing is good it's it's wonderful truly mary Kay. i don't know like i'd be curious i want you to watch ted lasso because my theory is you're not gonna like it that much really i, I okay. didn't finish it i only got i through, don't like, think you're gonna like it and season. i can see why dan didn't i think it's gonna be a bit too saccharine for you to get okay through. that's okay. like the big criticism of it but other than that my garbage tv watch lately is vanderpump rules and i have to bring it up <laughs> oh, i went back to know. the beginning because mary Kay and i have no mary Kay's talked about on the podcast but we went to sir we went to Tom Tom when we were out in LA and at Sir at the front bar, which like, it's funny, I'll be watching the show and be like, Mary Kay and I were standing right there when Lisa <laughs> Vanderpump walked by with her Pomeranians and her husband, Ken Todd. And I was, <laughs> I was just shocked because I'm like, oh my gosh, it's a real housewife. And if it had been one of my favorite real housewives, I probably would have fangirled out a little bit, but I'm like, no, you have to be cool. You have to act like you've, you've been here before. So I did not bombard her for a picture request. I would have if she wasn't moving so quickly. She can move. She was she was out of there with her dogs in tow. Okay, that's going to do it for this edition of the Orange and Brown Talk podcast. Find us on Instagram, search Orange and Brown Talk. Find us on YouTube, search Cleveland Browns on cleveland.com. And, of course, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. And after you do that, become a Football Insider subscriber. Cleveland.com slash Browns, the blue banner at the top of the page. For Mary Kay and Ashley and Dan, thanks for listening, everybody. Mm-hmm.